Good morning, friends. Today's message is winning souls or winning arguments. Now, I got to tell you, I kind of wrestled with that title because I also thought about calling it uh, whining or winning. I also thought about calling it condemning or gospeling. I probably could have called it uh, denigrating or denominationalism. But uh, hopefully you'll get the idea as we dig a little bit deeper today. This morning we're going to uh, dig into a Bible story from John chapter 4, <clears throat> begins at verse 5, and talk about how to change the world. And this story is kind of a chance encounter between Jesus and a woman at a well in Samaria. It's the same sort of chance encounter that you and I have just about every day. This story shows us how God can use these chance encounters in our lives to make a long-lasting difference in the lives of many people. In fact, it may turn out to be a winning soul situation, and hopefully not just we won another argument. Let's take a look at John chapter 4 and see what, what it teaches us. Now, the story begins with Jesus and his disciples in Judea, uh, which is in the south of Palestine. They were traveling to Galilee, which is in the north. Now, to get there, you needed to go through, uh-oh, Samaria. Well, you all probably know uh, the Samaritan, the Jews, didn't much like each other. They had a, a shared heritage in blood and in faith, but it was this commonality that kind of caused the problem. The Samaritans were a mixed race. They're Jewish ancestors who had married into other ethnic groups. So, from the Jewish perspective, they were half-breeds. The Samaritans practiced a religion similar to Judaism, but a little bit different. They followed only the first five books of the Old Testament, so they weren't true adherents of Judaism. Now, over the centuries, there had been bloodshed between the two groups, and resentment and mistrust remained strong. Jews commonly looked at Samaritans with contempt. In fact, when Jews needed to travel from Judea to Galilee, they usually add three days to the trip and go across the Jordan River and walk up along the other side and just go around Samaria to avoid it. But here Jesus and his disciples decide to do what? Walk straight through Samaria. Verses 5 to 8 read, So he, that's Jesus, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now, he had sent his disciples into town to buy food. Now, here's the first thing I want you to notice. Your greatest opportunities often arrive unplanned and unexpected. Now, Jesus and his disciples intended to spend only a short amount of time in this city, just eat lunch and move on. And while the disciples went into town to get food, Jesus waited by the well. Now, the Bible says that he was tired from the journey. Now, this is when the opportunity presented himself. And so Jesus asked the woman for a drink. And then in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, it's not just that Jews wouldn't associate with Samaritans. Specifically, they wouldn't eat or drink or even share a table with them. I mean, the prevailing attitude was that the Samaritans were unclean, that they were somehow less than human, and you know, they just deserved to be treated that way. And because of past conflicts between the Jews and the Samaritans, there were people in Jesus' day who would have treated Samaritans exactly the same way 
We've seen so many ethnic groups be treated here in the United States. And they would have used their religion and maybe even their patriotism to justify their hatred. But what did Jesus do? He asked this woman, a cultural enemy, for a drink. Now, here's the second lesson in how to change the world. God expects his people to treat all people. Did you get that? All people. Now, what does all mean? Well, all means all. To treat all people like people. Now, it's not only surprising that Jesus would ask a Samaritan for a drink, but that he would also engage in conversation with, now here it is again, a woman. In addition to prevailing racist attitudes in the first century Palestine, women were looked upon with contempt. Jesus made a habit of breaking down barriers, as we see with Mary Magdalene, the woman caught in adultery, or the woman, the woman who anointed Jesus in the home of Simon, or the, the woman who touched the hem of his garment, and on and on. So remember, friends, no one is less than human, not in God's eyes, not in the eyes of people. No one, absolutely no one is beyond redemption, not in God's eyes, not in the eyes of his people. The Bible makes it very clear we all stand before God on equal ground. Now, Paul, in the book of Galatians, I think it's chapter 3, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, sadly, I, I know of churches that somewhat intentionally market themselves to a specific demographic, for example, upper middle class white families. I can even remember a church that did a mailing in which they specifically designated their brochure to be delivered on some streets and not others. That's sad. Now, why? Well, it's because they wanted to reach the people in their target demographic. In other words, probably upper middle class white people. Now, do you know who our target demographic really is? Well, again, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you want to make a difference in the world you live in, you need to let go of your biases and your prejudices and learn to see every living person as God sees them. Every person on this planet matters to him. They should matter to you and me as well. Now, going on in our text in verses 10 to 12, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? Now, we recognize immediately the spiritual significance of the term living water. But she didn't, because in first century Palestine, living water described running water. Now, going on in verse 13 to 15, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I don't need to get thirsty and have to keep coming up here to draw water. Now, she still didn't fully understand now, actually, some scholars say that the woman's response might have been made in, as a kind of a joke, as if she thought the conversation had become kind of a, a verbal volley back and forth, and she was going along with what she thought was a joke. Now, regardless, she wasn't prepared for what Jesus said next in verses 16 to 18. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. 
Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five of them, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, here's the third key in being a world changer. You need to learn to speak the truth without condemnation. You've heard me say it before. We are not called to be condemners. We are called to be gospelers. Now, this woman was living an immoral lifestyle. I mean, Jesus didn't ignore it, nor did he condone it or encourage it. He just simply addressed it as just the facts. Approach to let her know that this was an area of her life that she'd have to deal with. Now, of the 20 verses of recorded conversation with this woman, only three are about her sinful life. In the rest of this conversation, Jesus is establishing a friendship. He's telling her how to connect with God, and he's telling her about himself. When it came to the subject of sin, he said only as much as needed to be said. He said enough to let the Holy Spirit convict her, and that was that. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, who had every right to condemn people, didn't. Instead, you probably remember John 3.16, but do you remember John 3.17? It says, for God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, this attitude expressed to the broken people who came to Jesus for mercy, this, this needs to be our attitude as well. Now, sometimes it seems like we want our message to be only about the ugliness of sin. But if we want to make a difference in people's lives, we need to do more than merely point out their sin. Now, remember, we're not called to be condemners. We're called to be gospelers. We need to point people in the direction of the God who loves them and the Savior who gave his life for them. Now, when Jesus spoke about this woman's husband, her so-called husband, she said in verses 19 and 20, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, there are some people who think that she's just changing the subject with this question, but I don't think she is. She's actually continuing it. It's as if she's saying, if I am going to come back to God, how do I do it? Where do I make the proper sacrifice? Can I worship here as a Samaritan, or do I need to go to Jerusalem and sacrifice there? Now, as I mentioned before, the Samaritan religion was different than the Jewish religion. Samaritans accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament of Scripture. In addition to that, they had adjusted history somewhat to suit themselves, saying that it was a mountain in Samaria where Abraham had been asked to sacrifice Isaac and where Moses had built an altar to worship God. Now, they did this in order to make this nearby mountain a holy place, as Jerusalem was for the Jewish people. So her question to Jesus was, which religion is the true religion? The answer, well, we find it out in verses 21 to 24. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I can imagine how some might have answered this question. 
I mean, they might have said, well, first of all, ma'am, we need to discuss some of the problems I've observed in the way that you guys interpret certain passages of the book of Moses. I mean, a detailed textual analysis will reveal that your beloved Mount Gerizim was not even mentioned in the most reliable ancient manuscripts. That's a later edition. So you can forget about this mountain being holy. The word of God proves this mountain isn't holy, which is why your Samaritan religion is really kind of stupid. You've got to denounce it and abandon it. Well, maybe if they didn't say that, maybe they would have said, well, second, we need to discuss the veracity of the wisdom books and the prophets, because in order to worship in truth, you need to come to a right understanding about which books are authoritative. And unless you accept the Psalms and the prophets of the word of God, you can't worship in truth. You can only worship him in error because you don't accept what we accept as the word of God. They might be mad at, oh, by the way, third, let's not forget this business about the five husbands. I'm not finished with that by a long shot. Now, I'm being a little facetious here, but it's important to note that Jesus did not engage this woman in a biblical debate. He told her how she could connect with the living God. And that tells us something. If you want to make a difference in this world, winning souls must be more important than winning arguments. Did you get that? Winning souls must be more important than winning arguments. You see, the Christ follower's life isn't just about intellectually accepting certain propositional statements as truth. It's about giving God all of you, loving him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. The, the Christian life is about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Now, what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, in verses 25 and 26, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now, a little bit later in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus declares to his followers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, friends, we must worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, truth doesn't refer to correctly acknowledging the right set of facts. It refers to having a personal relationship with the living truth, the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that brings us to our fifth key in changing the world. Our objective is to help people connect with Jesus, not with a denomination or not just to get them to join our church or sign their name on a membership book someplace. I mean, there are some who think that we will change the world through the political process. Uh, that's where our hopes lie, and they, they'll always end up disappointed. Now, I can remember a, a pretty well-known preacher several years ago. His sermon was called, How to Bring America Back to God. His first point was, vote. His second point was, write your congressman. Now, i got to tell you, there's nothing wrong with being politically involved. But ultimately, that's not where the power is, and that's not where our hope is rest. But I hate to say it, I, I see enough on Facebook that it makes me wonder whether people are, you know, the way to bring a self, or, or our country back to God is voting and chastising people who are in governmental power. But friends, that's not where the power is, and that's not where our hope rests. Our hope is in Jesus. Now, I want my life, I want your life, and whatever missional community I attend to be more than anything else about Jesus, about helping a lost world connect with him. Our objective is to help people connect with Jesus because Jesus is the only answer for the world. Well, let's take a look at how this story ends. In this final section, there are three more details I want to bring to your attention. 
starting at verse 27. Just when the, just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a, a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then came out of the town, or they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him some food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, Jesus said this because there's nothing more fulfilling in life than doing God's will and being used by him to change, I'm going to use the word, restore people's lives. After the woman left him and went into the town, I could imagine Jesus basking in the joy of what had just taken place. And when this story began, he was tired from the journey. He was hungry, so he sent his disciples in the town to the local McDonald's or the Chick-fil-A. Now, we don't know if they if he ever got that drink of water, but none of that mattered because he just changed a sinful woman's life and through her influence, many would come to know him. I got to tell you, there's nothing more satisfying than to be used by God. I also want you to see that when you make yourself available to be used by God, a new world of opportunity presents itself. In verse 35, do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for the harvest. Now, some Christ followers and even some churches believe that we live in a world of shrinking opportunities. They say people don't care about spiritual things anymore. They don't want to come to, to churches. It's, it's not like it used to be in the good old days. I'm not sure if the good old days were all that good sometimes. Do you want to know the truth about the matter? There is a world of opportunity out there for the person who's ready to be used by God. The fields are ripe for fellowship that are ready to hand deliver the good news to their community. I mean, our attitude can't be that we've built a building and opened the doors and it's up to them to show up. We must be ready to bring Jesus to the world that needs them. Now, Jesus continues here in verses 36 to 41. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Did you get that? Jesus just intended to stay long enough to eat lunch and have a glass of water and then move on. Instead, revival broke out. He stays two more days. I mean, this move of God starts with a single conversation with a sinful woman drawing water. The grace she experienced spread throughout the community, and as a result, many lives were changed. And so I'm going to tell you, friends, when you let God use you, he multiplies your efforts. Opportunities never stop coming your way. Your efforts are blessed, they're multiplied, and they're blessed again. The people you help start helping others. I mean, you reap where you haven't sown. You play a role in changing the lives of people you've never known personally. But because of what God can do through you, your lives will never, ever be the same. And let's remember... 
that this happens one life at a time, one day at a time, one simple conversation at a time. My prayer is that God may use you to change the world, not by winning arguments, by winning souls. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion. God bless.